Hi, this is Jennifer Javornik, and you're listening to the Film and Games Podcast. This year, I attended the Games for Change Festival in New York City. Tune in to all the interviews in this series to hear insightful conversations with some of the best minds in educational gaming. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Film and Games Podcast. This is Jennifer, and I'm recording here from Games for Change. It's been jam-packed. It's been amazing. If you've never been to this conference and you're in the industry or curious about the industry, highly recommend you coming. It's growing every year. Uh, Today, I am joined by someone who I've known for a while, I really like, who's also been coming to Games for Change for quite a few years, and I'm really excited to ask her all the questions I've actually never just had the time to ask her. So if without further ado, I'd love her to introduce herself. Hi, uh, it's so great to be here. Um, My name is Liz Newberry. I am the director of the Serious Games Initiative at the Wilson Center, and I use she, her pronouns. Thank you, uh, Jennifer, asking. And I'm just so excited to be here and so excited to be back at Games for Change in person. I know, right? What do you, what's your take so far? What's, what's new from you for past, from past conferences? Yeah. So I wasn't here last year. So the whole new space is very exciting to see. We're in the time center and then we're also in the Microsoft building and it's so just well energized across the two buildings and so much good programming. I'm just so very excited to be here. They've, they've, uh, they used to have these tracks that you would sort of line up with, and now it's more of a free form uh, programming with a lot of different formats. So you have like informal discussions with tabletop discussions, and then you have more formal keynote, a whole range of different ways that you can engage and talk to people across the industry. I agree. One thing that really stands out to me this year is the number of international speakers. Oh, yeah. So Games for Change has, well, first, this whole past year has developed a relationship with the the United Nations and are Mm -hmm. supporting their development goals, sustainable development goals. Um, and then also just the speakers are like people have flown in from what it seems like every continent to change the, to attend the festival. Yeah. Um, and I just have to believe that, you know, if we're going to make change in the world, we need everyone. So I'm glad everyone's here. Yeah, no, I'm really excited as, since I come from the Wilson center, which is an international policy think tank, it's, uh, aggressively nonpartisan. Uh, we are based in DC and it was good to, to hop from D.C. on the train up here and go to the U.N. for a great conversation about the SDGs and how games can support them. It, it was just really exciting. They had all this arcade set up so you could play games that were supporting the SDGs. You could hear really great discussion. And I, I think that for those who weren't able to make it, I, th- I think they're making those available online. And if you're new to the industry, it's a great way to kind of dip your toe in. To, Curated to by U.N. women. Yes. I was like, of course, it took the women to pull this together. Exactly. Yes, we're proud of them. Okay, Liz, my first question to you, which I don't think I've ever asked you, but the Wilson Center is, like you mentioned, a bipartisan organization focused on policy. And yet you're like a government entity yeah. uh, that houses a full-fledged serious game department that you chair or that you head. Yeah. Tell us why, why the Wilson Center at has decided to make this investment. It's pretty unique. Yeah, so the Wilson Center actually started the Serious Games Initiative about 20 years ago, back when, do you remember Army of One, the yeah. game? So Army of One had come out a, a little bit before that, and that really, there generated all this buzz and discussion about how games could be used for public good and for public engagement, and that was how the Serious Games Initiative was originally formed. I, I was not here for it. Um, I was but a wee student somewhere in my trajectory there. 
when it started, but it was, it's really exciting. Um, the Wilson Center, we are a convening, what we call a convening institution. There's so many different DC buzzwords I could probably use to describe us. I would love to get it right. So please keep <laughs> using them because I'm sure like governmental entity is not uh, right. We are officially a federal instrumentality, which is very similar to the Smithsonian and the Kennedy Center. Um, we are a living memorial to President Wilson, strictly nonpartisan. Uh, we are Congress's think tank in many, many ways. We help inform and present research that's in the broader field. We focus on a lot of international studies. So it's even more unique that we have the Serious Games Initiative, which one of the things that I, I do as part of that is I use games. I create games that are about leading policy discourse. Some of our uh, games have been on such thrilling and exciting topics as the federal budget, which only, I, I swear, only in D.C. we go, you know, it'd be really awesome and fun. <laughs> the federal budget. Let's make that a game. But it's been played about four million times worldwide, uh, from Budget Hero to The Fiscal Ship, which is our current uh, rendition of it. And you don't need an econ degree to, to play it. And you get to set your own goals and somehow get us out of national debt as part of that. So that's really exciting. So I make games like that. And then I also um, do research on games and game-based approaches to try to understand how they can be used for good, how they are being used by the broader field, such as like entities like Filament, but also academic institutions, governmental institutions. And one of the other hats I wear is I'm the chair of this informal community of practice called the Federal Games Guild, which is a, a community across federal agencies and staff therein who are united by the idea of games can be used to help meet their mission goals or to help support the work that they're doing and help support the American people. So that's kind of uh, the orientation of why the Wilson Center hosts this. It's the novel idea that games can be used for positive impacts and they can be used to help elevate public discourse. Thank you for all that. I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned um, the federal games group because um, that's from all of us outsiders that are not in government. It's fascinating that there, you know, I definitely think of it as you, there's a secret knock and handshake and you convene <laughs> somewhere like in the basement with clearance um, that we're like, hey, we're actually going to change the world and this is how we're going to do it. No, I really wish I had like a basement game arcade or something, but I do not. Unfortunately, I, I don't have like a hidden dwarven tavern or something at the Wilson Center uh, and there, there's no handshake, but we are, it's, an, it's a novel idea to have a group that's even informal, interested in the use of games, and to also be present at activities like Games for Change and other sorts of public outreach where it's, it's a safe space. There are gamers in government. There are also people who are supporting uh, game-based approaches at, like uh, small businesses like Philemon and a couple of other leading uh, serious games groups. And really just trying to make ourselves present. So the Federal Games Group, a lot of our members, our guild is the, the, the term we prefer to use. Thank you. Um, but the, in the Federal Games Guild, one of the things that we have is a wide diversity of practices. Uh, so I would even say the majority of people are just uh, interested in how games are being used and trying to keep their ear to the ground. There is a, a very visible uh, group of folks that fund games. So if you go to wilsoncenter.org backslash federal dash games dash guild, I know that sounds like a word puzzle to, to get the URL, but 
there's a, a PDF at the very top of the page that shows funding opportunities for game-based approaches. Uh, it's a PDF because we are government, so we're about 10 years behind any sort of uh, technological practices. That's a joke. Um, but we there's a group of us that fund games, so like Department of Education, National Institutes of Health, CDC, DHS, uh, Name Your Alphabet Soup. And then there's a group of us that actually make games and use them either internally or uh, for public usage. I would say that's a smaller minority. And then the even smaller is uh, folks like me who research games. Right. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that link. So I don't know if you caught that, but they maintain a list. It's a PDF download for your convenience of like all the different federal departments who have grants opportunities that would that are open to receiving proposals that include a game-based approach. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you monitor your downloads, but I swear 75% of them for me because <laughs> um, at Filmic Games, I talk to everyone's interested and, you know, a lot of people come to us with great ideas and then I have to break the news that we actually get paid for our services <laughs> and they say, well, where are we going to get money? And I'm like, go over here. Yeah. There's yeah. a list. And I, you guys keep it very updated. Like I often see new versions go up. I track your version control. Yeah. We, we do have a new version that just came out uh, in July, 2023. Uh, it might even be updated by the time this airs, but if you... For some reason, don't uh, the a PDF is just not enough. Um, one of my colleagues at the Department of Education puts on an expo every year. It's called the easily enough Ed Games Expo, uh, where you can see a wide range of both games that have been funded and other educational technologies, but games in particular that have been funded through the federal government and government grants, and then also. Groups that are trying to fund games and interested in game-based approaches, uh, it's a good way to connect there. And it's hosted in September of this year, September 20th, I believe, is the first day. And it's at the Kennedy Center. They bus in students from around the D.C. area. Oh, we've been in the past. It's hilarious. Like, if you're a game developer in particular, and it's been a while since you've had actually kids play your games, like, it's so special because... They literally just got bus to the Kennedy Center to play games all day. They're so excited, and they kind of swarm the area. And yeah, no, it's it's great. And you get to see all those aha moments and the eureka moments amongst the the kids as they really sort of tap into this unique medium and fun medium to play and learn. So it's it's a really good opportunity if you happen to be in the DC area, and it's at the Kennedy Center. So I don't under like. Win-win-win. Win-win-win. Exactly. It can't get much better. Yeah, no, for sure. So one of the things, um, um, I also send people to your website because you, uh, because I assume because a lot of your work is grant funded, you have so many free high quality games right on your website. Yeah. So uh, a lot of our games, we have a, a couple more coming out, but the ones that are currently on the Federal Games Guild website, uh, we have a couple from the Department of State, uh, their global engagement uh uh, center over there has developed some games for embassy usage around disinformation. Uh, Cat Park is actually, as we sit here at uh, Games for Change, up for a potential award. It's nominated for Best Civics Game. And then we also have uh, some virtual reality experiences that are put out by my colleagues at the CDC. And then also examples of games that have been funded through uh, federal bodies. Uh, so just a whole list of educational opportunities there. And uh, even 
more if you are like me and love YouTube videos. There's a there's a list on through the Ed Games Expo of I think around eighty five something games and YouTube oh, videos. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, they have a list on YouTube. They have their own channel. They have a, they, it's not a channel. I think it's a playlist okay. on IES. Um, I'll put a link very prominently on the Federal Games Guild. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because all, always people are looking for high-quality games. And what's so great about the games that were created under some kind of federal grant is they're usually also researched and yeah. studied mm-hmm. and kind of aligned to Common Core standards and NGSS standards. You can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah that's one of the things that it's, it sets a high standard, but it's a, it, it's a good standard to try to meet is the research needs and the impact analysis that comes from submitting to these grants. You, you have to demonstrate uh, all points in the process. So it's great that way. Yeah, no, I agree. So I know, I'm obviously, you're focused a lot on games. I know you do all types of media to the public. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about a project we're working on together. But we're working on it this year. But it's a, it's a project that's been going on for many yeah. years. Tell us a little bit about Across the Carmen. So Across Carmen is our space research portfolio at the Wilson Center through the Science and Technology Innovation Program. Part of the idea behind it is to, in very accessible but plain speak, try to break down key points about space policy. So we're working on together a interactive, and I, I just love working with your design team. It's, it's an amazing group. Oh, great. Um, but we're working on a, a, a cross-carbon, it's sat- for satellites. So it's one of those instances where my colleague... Uh, gets a, a lot of questions about what do we put in space? Where does it go in space and the orbits around space, like earth? So what does low earth orbit mean? And why do we put things in low earth orbit versus other forms of orbit? And uh, it's just a really great opportunity to have a hands-on interactive and understand what we put in space. And we take examples like, why is the space station in low Earth orbit? Not picking on low Earth orbit, but it's one of the more uh, prevalent things that you've heard of. And just clicking through and being able to play with the, the different orbits and trying to understand what goes into space, why is it there, what are the risks also with putting them into particular orbits. It should be launching uh, very soon, and we've just had a, a great time of working with your team on that. Okay, well, we can't wait for it to come out. I'm interested as, you know, a lot of people who make serious games uh, think about, even if they're offering for free, like how to make sure people know about them. Yeah. Um, So when you look, uh, you don't have to reveal what your website analytics look, but when you look, how do you, how does the Wilson Center go about getting your media in front of teachers and students and people and kind of, and yeah, what are your other ideas for doing that? So um, I get a chicken suit and I stand on the corner. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But it's a space chicken suit. It's a space chicken. It's a space chicken suit. No, but uh, seriously, that's a really good question. It's actually one of the more common questions I get from a lot of colleagues across uh, when we think of serious games. One of the biggest barriers is trying to get it into classrooms and trying to engage with the audiences that you want to engage with. So there's a, there's a couple different formulas. I like to think of it as a top-down and then also a bottom-up approach. So working directly with networks of educators to working directly through um, even colleagues who are here at Games for Change or other festivals to try to tell them about new products that are coming out. 
And then when um, you say network of educators, is that your own network of educators or are you like yeah. pinging certain groups that you're part of? Uh, that's more of my, I was thinking that's in the case of personal network, but it is one of those things where there are, um, so like if you're making one for a particular STEM field, there's a network of uh, STEM educators or that sort of thing. Um, the other way though, that the Wilson Center really capitalizes it is in traditional media and uh, press engagements and that sort of thing. So putting out press releases and just getting the word out that way. So I talked about Fiscal Ship when that was first published way back in the day in 2016, in the pre-pre times, um, we we had coverage in USA Today and The Economist and a couple of others um, that really tried to get the word out about it. And it, it does it does really heavily impact um, outreach. Not everybody has our, our stellar press team, and I understand that. Um, but there's been a long history of trying to solve that X factor. Um, that's honestly one of the reasons I love coming to events like Games for Change, because I get to go to the arcade and see all sorts of new games that have come out that I wouldn't have otherwise heard of. I agree. I agree. And I do also agree with your, like, um, I know I ask people, like, if we have a launch, even if it's not a RIP and we are launching for one of our clients and we're really proud of the work, I will literally just hit up people I know through Games for Change being like, it's going out on this day. Yeah. Could you play it and put something on your own social media? I mean, that's how grassroots it's gotten just because every day there's there's thousands of great games being made, made either for entertainment or for positive impact. And there's no way, you know, as the typical consumer just sees what's on the front page of um, the app store. Like, it's really hard to, like, kind of get attention. So I, I kind of agree. We all need to be helping each other get the news out about all the games we're creating. I know in some ways, sometimes we're competitors, but honestly, this market is still so young that we just need to get move serious games into more people's awareness. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. And I think it would be Somebody, somebody really needs to work on how to meet educators where they stand. But as you know from developing games like this, uh, practices across different counties and schools varies very widely. And it really does take that one advocate in a school to just be the, the catalyst for using games in, that, in the classroom. Yep, for sure. How did you get into games? Ah, so... That's a great question. Um, so I grew up in a household with three brothers, and we had a Sega Genesis and Nintendo Game Boys, and they were not good at sharing those <laughs> consoles and uh, Game Boys. So I think it really spawned my competitive spirit very early on in thinking, well, if you're not going to let me play games, then I'm going to just do it better. And so... Here I am. Uh, I originally actually in, in college studied more of the digital divide. So like gendering technologies and how um, particular um, communities were welcomed into te- te- technology fields, particularly video games. And then it snowballed from there. I, I got my PhD from Cornell University studying esports audiences, particularly from... I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I speak fluent Minecraft and esports. Okay. Uh, anyone ever needs a translator? Yeah. I joke about that, but I, I did actually have faculty tell me that I made them cool to their nephew because they could say that somebody studied uh, video games in their So department. what's the TLDR in your PhD work? 
Uh, what is the esports audience? So back back in the day, my question originally was, why do people watch other people play video games on the internet? Mm. Particularly because a lot of the research at that time was focusing on how games are an interactive medium and a lot of the benefits we get as an interactive medium. Fast forward with esports, you're watching other people play on the internet, but you get a lot of different benefits from that. There's a social experience, even whether it's a perceived online community that you're participating in, very much like sports, um, or whether it's an actual community, so like people watching esports even virtually with their friends. But one of the interesting things is that people watching people, it was also a part of their play practice or a part of like different ways of engaging in the medium, whether it's looking at Reddit or um, they, they didn't just watch. There's all of this body of practice that went around audiences. But I, I did uh, interviews and I did analysis of literally the spaces where people watched esports in their homes. And it was just, it was just fun. It was, a, it was a good way to understand gaming audiences, but specifically esports audiences. Are you still any way involved in esports? Yeah. So at the Wilson Center, I put on uh, convenings and I do research into esports. I'm probably, I think I can safely say I'm the only person with a PhD in esports <laughs> in the federal government. That may change sometime, but uh, that is currently true. And so I've put on events um, as part of the Ed Games Expo, in fact, uh, on esports, particularly last time was on how HBCUs are engaging with esports and how um, before that it was more of uh, the different levels of esports engagement from a small business to the, the big uh, professional gaming companies. Yeah. So. Oh, I had no idea you were involved in this. So tell yeah. me what, what you think about Scholastic Esports. Yeah. Like, where are we in 2023? With What's the state of Scholastic Esports in America? And where what's what's working? What's, what's the struggle? And where are we going? I think that it's still very much a wild west of esports. So it's still, we're still trying to figure it out. That's the, the first and foremost. I think it's uh, solidifying a little bit more on the collegiate level, but within the K through 12 space, it's really such a disparate practices, again, across different uh, communities. And one of the things that always heartens me, though, is that part of the conversation, or oftentimes a part of the conversation, is how do we make esports a safe space at that level for uh gender minorities, how do we use this as a tool to engage those that don't normally feel engaged as part of uh, practices in schools where teachers are, again, and it's it's very similar to a conversation of why serious games initially was uh, booted up as a field. How do we meet students where they stand? It's not necessarily about, it's not always about uh, scholarships and getting into college with esports, but really just understanding how to engage students in uh, SEL, um, socio-emotional learning, sorry, and uh, other sorts of game-based practices uh, using esports. So it's it's really heartening to see how teachers are really eager to see how to expand the conversation and where to really meet students where they stand. What are some of the ways? How are they doing that? Uh, so some of the ways that teachers are really trying to capitalize on esports, it's actually really tricky because it's both you see practices of teachers trying to use it in a more of a professional competitive sport sense, 
And that seems to be a lot of the common narrative with esports is how do we make it into a sports sport? And that's great. That was a big part of my dissertation is where it overlaps with sports yep. and uh, traditional sports culture. But one of the things that I always caution is it's still a unique medium. Video games, one of the benefits and where I really hope that it goes as a part of conversation is not just understanding how students can be engaged in local community competitions, but how students can be engaged in this global community of practice around esports. It's so interesting to me that you could have students in one school district playing with students across the nation in real time without having to bust them in. But not just across the nation, you could be using them and engaging them across with global citizenship. So that's really, that's where I hope it's going. Um, where it is right now is still just trying to figure out how to get administrators to sign off on it. Right. <laughs> Who's going to pay for the neon lights? Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Tell me a little bit more about the work you did studying HBCUs and esports. So it's really interesting to me how I see esports being implemented across historically black colleges and universities. A lot of the narrative that's being um, built around esports, and again, I, I'm not trying to paint any one university or any one program as adhering to this, but a, a interesting trends in, uh, that I'm seeing are First of all, engaging the community beyond the colleges to really try to demonstrate there's a pathway in esports to young people of color in particular. A lot of the other narrative is for expanding diversity and inclusion is understanding it not just as a sport, but as a business enterprise. So really making sure that students, when they're at HBCUs, are under, are, have the tools and the equipment and the training to make it a business, to make, to make it a profitable enterprise once they are beyond college. It's not just about the play, but about the holistic experience of esports, again, as a, as a sport and as a growing avenue for entrepreneurship. Another way that I have seen it really engaging with HBCUs is this broader context of building spaces. One of the things about esports is that when you create an esports quote-unquote arena, you're creating a multi-use lab. You're putting high-tech, well, in the ideal world, you have a space that is a very high-tech computer lab that has live streaming built in. You have a lot of media products that you have to build in. It's partially you can watch people play, but also you can experience play yourself. It's just such a really interesting medium to understand all sorts of avenues and resources that can be available in a multi-use space for esports. So when we're thinking about diversity, it's not just, it's not just, it's kind of expanding it from just the play aspect and really seeing it as a holistic ecosystem of practice around esports. And that's one of the ways that HBCUs I've seen uh, operationalizing it. That makes sense to me. Um, do you think we'll see the day where educational games are played as an esport? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, so we are already seeing that a little bit. So with Minecraft, for example, um, I, I feel like I'm being a promo for Games for Change, but this is really, I'm just so excited for some of the things that we're seeing here. Uh, there was a, a panel not just moments ago from when we were talking about the Battle of the Boroughs and esports. So they took Minecraft and they made it this 
it's, it's just so cool. They mapped it with uh, like environmental education, a fun activity for students to compete against each other from the different boroughs in New York City, and building and practicing Minecraft in a competitive atmosphere. And I, I that is a serious game to me. They're learning as part of the process. They're not only just learning about how to make the game, but they're also learning about these environmental policies and sustainability and all that. And so, yeah, yeah, we're seeing esports as a as a serious game in an educational field. I yeah, think. I hope so because I feel too with all when I talk to high schools and they're just struggling to get buy in. I'm like, please use the serious game community as a opener to your your larger esports program. And I think every time I see it, say it, I'm not saying there's not value in competing in the games that these high schoolers are playing know and love, right? Mm -hmm. And that could lead to playing opportunities in college. Got it. Yeah. But there's, uh, there's definitely room for as you're training your teams or even just gathering as a group of people fanatical about esports to like incorporate some educational games. Yeah. And, but I also, at the same time, caution, it makes me uh, aware that a lot of teachers are having to make that justification of the envir- the educational component to esports. You wouldn't have to do that with booting up any other sport. Well, you also wouldn't have to turn soccer into the business. We're not, we're yeah. not training the kids playing football <laughs> to think about opening a football club. That That's very true. Yeah. But we're so, trying every which way we are bringing out all the stops. Yeah, no, we're exactly. teaching about AV and entrepreneurship and marketing. And I'm like, just throw educational games in there too. They're going to have to say yes at some point. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And there's some really early studies of like the setup of co- competitive, just literally setting up the room again for uh, these sort of competitions you learn all sorts about computer hardware as a result of it because you have to set up the computers. You have to know what computers you need. If you are playing a computer-based uh, game, which I'm very biased towards. Um, sure. But yeah, so I, I, can, I can really see that. And it's, I think that we're, we're going to be seeing, or what I hope we're going to be seeing is sort of an expansion of what it means to be an eSport. Uh, when I was doing my dissertation work, there was a lot of discussion of what is an esport? We still can't even decide how to spell esports. <laughs> right. is, it, is it a capital S? Is it hyphenated? I, I uh, was told by my committee to, if under pain of death it was lowercase s, just for the for the record. Yep. The uh, internet is with you on that. I had I googled it and listened to <laughs> read many forms and all capitals, unless it's the beginning of a sentence, then you can capitalize the E. Yes. I mean, all lowercase. If you get nothing else from this podcast episode, <laughs> at least you now know how to spell esports. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's also, like, what is exactly an esport? Does speedrunning count as an esport? Is going through, a, I would say, if track is a sport, then speedrunning is a sport. So we don't have that discussion with, with uh, uh, track, so I, I can completely see that. And I can also see if chess is a sport, then yeah, of course, educational games can be a sport. Yep. I agree. All right. Well, we just solved that. Yeah. I'm glad. Uh, uh, what else do we have at world peace? Is that another thing? <laughs> oh, we, we solved that at the beginning of the week. Oh, okay, yeah, the yeah. Meeting? oh sorry. Yeah, that was what happened at the UN. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Done. Uh, well, I'd love to just hear, I and mean, we're going to wrap up, um, 
I really see you as a, a strong thought leader in this space. I think oh, thank you. because of your connection uh, to the federal government and your kind of deep knowledge in games, I mean, I think you come at it from a really unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is a hard question to answer it as you like, but where, where in 2023, where do you think we are as a serious games industry? Like what's working and what's yet to come? As an industry, I think that we have already accepted that games can be used for powerful learning uh, activations. Yep. They can be used to engage uh, communities. They can be used on a, both a global community level and engaging that way, but also at a very localized level. Where I think that we're going is beyond... Yes, games can be used for good, which honestly, that has taken a while to to really demonstrate. How do we form long-term impact? How do we, it's not just a one-off engagement, but how do we really create uh, systematic change with games? Um, I think another big thing that we're, we're steering towards is understanding that there's a wide range. Like this is the first time at Games for Change that we've done board games as a as a category. Mm-hmm. There's a wide range of practices uh, that can really be used and really engaged with that uh, can help all sorts of communities. And again, you mentioned like global engagement on that the Africa program, the Latin America program, Asia Pacific here at Games for Change. So I think that there's a burgeoning need for us as U.S. developers and U.S. government to engage with that broader community of practice abroad. One of the other aspects that I really am heartened with and hope that we see more of is returning to the idea that commercialization of games and commercial games, uh, not just games that are made from the get-go for educational opportunities, but that we can use games where students are already playing. Uh, so the Ro- Roblox and Minecrafts, the Fortnites of the world, and really engage them where they're standing and trying to understand how we can use that activity and that uh, energy that they put into that play as a positive force for good. And we've heard a lot about that here at Games for Change with Ubisoft's work, with Riot's work, and how they're mapping them to the SDGs and I just hope to see more and more of those conversations emerging. Me too, because I mean, in a lot of ways, I think we need all of it, first of all. I think one is not exclusive of the other. And I think it's particularly on those commercial games, like to your point, like that's that's where people are choosing, that's where young people are choosing to spend their time. So they have great, with that comes great responsibility. Exactly. And they need to learn from those of us who have been in the trenches, right, Uh, on how to effectively it can't just be cosmetic, right? Yeah. It has to be tied to pedagogy. It has to be tied to uh, impact analysis. It has to really incorporate a lot of those good practices to really be effective at change. Agreed. Well, good. We've solved that too. Great. Thank you. There's nothing left to do. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.